one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF Podcast. It's Friday, July 1st, and a very happy Canada Day to all of you listening at home in Canada. On a recent trip to Los Angeles, I sat down with Jens Greed, who, along with his wife, Emma, has played an instrumental role in establishing some of the most successful DTC businesses in partnership with some of the biggest names in popular culture. From Skims with Kim Kardashian, Brady with Tom Brady, and Good American with Khloe Kardashian, Jens and Emma have kind of created a new template for how DTC operates in a world where celebrities can connect directly with millions and millions of followers. But it's not just about celebrity. I talked to Jens about the trajectory of his career, from working in London's Adland to building his own fashion business with Frame, and his new focus on DTC businesses. Along the way, he shares valuable insights and nuggets of advice for any entrepreneur who is building their own business in a rapidly shifting fashion and consumer landscape. This is one not to miss. So without further ado, here's Jens Greed on the BOF Podcast. So thank you for having me here in your home. It's been maybe more than three years since we've seen each other. And I've been thinking about you a lot because... You know, watching from afar during the pandemic and seeing all of the momentum that you and Emma and your partners and the Kardashian family have been having on some of the businesses that you've been building together. And then there's also Frame. 
I wanted to start actually by going back to the beginning when you and I first met, because that was ages ago, maybe like 2008 or 2009 or something. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I feel like I've been a, an ardent supporter and part of the BOF community now since about the time when it was a newsletter, yeah. really a blog, right? Yeah. And I think, I don't know if you had left McKinsey yet at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, I had left. Or just had? Yeah, I just left. So, yeah, I think Mesh Shiber introduced us. The mm-hmm. first time I met you was at Soho House in Notting Hill. You were firmly embedded into the agency world, which mm-hmm. is like, your main focus. And how did that happen? Like when you first moved to London from Sweden, what was your dream and vision then? I came up through magazines and magazines to me in my late 20s was this window into this world of aspiration and beauty. I had always loved graphic design and from graphic design through photography. And I think at that moment in time, I'm going back now to late 90s, you know, fashion photography was very important. And it was like a movie in a shoot and it was an art form by itself. I mean, that is sadly, the importance of fashion photography probably has waned slowly over the past 20 years or so. But at the time that was highly important. I worked at a fashion magazine called Stockholm New. Stockholm New was this small niche publication published out of Stockholm, but we shot with uh, photographers like Michael Johnson and Mario Testino and etc. And it had a voice. So I fell in love with a girl when I was in my 20s and she was an assistant at Vogue and I had to find myself a job in London and I knew two people in London. I was 21 years old. I knew Jefferson Hack and I knew Tyler Brule. Mm-hmm. Sadly, Jefferson didn't give me a job. I've spoken to him at length about this <laughs> after a drink or two. But Tyler kindly did, and I moved a few months later to London to work. What I thought was for Wallpaper magazine, and I remember arriving on the first day, and he said, yeah, you have to start up at Wink, which at the time was the creative agency that was attached to the magazine. And that's where I met Eric, and that's where I became an ad man, <laughs> for the lack of better, a young ad man. So it wasn't actually the agency world that brought you to London. It was a love for magazines and the agency thing kind of just happened. Yeah. And it was an era where agency and publishing was intertwined. My idols at the time, like Fabian Barron, they were part agency and they were part, you know, magazine creative director at the time. He just stopped doing Harper's Bazaar, I think. And he was doing W and Loma Vogue and et cetera. And that really was a huge inspiration. And I, I remember sitting with Eric at the age of 22 at an Italian restaurant called Orso in the theater district. And we said to each other, if we could only ever do Calvin Klein, that was the dream to create campaigns for Calvin Klein. And how did you meet Eric? Was that at Wink? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, he didn't like me very much to begin with. I think there was two Swedes, you know. The agency wasn't big enough for two Swedes. Actually, we were four Swedes. Maybe I was one Swede too many. Uh, in any case, we became best friends. Well, well, you at least owe to Tyler Brule a lifelong partnership with Eric. And you guys have gone on to do lots of things together. So the next thing happened that then you went and set up your own thing, right? Yeah. And I think I learned a lot from Tyler. Tyler lived his brand 
and I believe he has always done that. If you followed him for a week or you followed him for a month, you really saw the next issue coming together through the experiences he had. He was his consumer. And I'd say that about every great editor that I worked with, Dylan Jones being another, when Eric and I was part of uh, launching GQ Style, which is great editors are consumers of their own product. It's their own curiosity. It's their own filter. And uh, they make these magazines to entertain and inform themselves. Right. Because I guess they're just curious about certain things. And I, I think, you know, it takes deep and consistent curiosity to become an editor. Right. And I say this as someone who became an editor who never imagined to become an editor. And you know, the only thing that keeps you going is that you continue to be curious. That's right. And you're curious about certain things or certain people or certain places or a certain life. Yeah. I mean, we founded a magazine called Industry of real fandom for the industry. I wanted to hang out with Rick Owens in a gym and see what he ate and how he trained. Yeah. With Instagram and social media, that voyeuristic, because remember, information was hard to come by when you started Business of Fashion. Information yeah. was very limited. The actors and actresses of our world of fashion weren't celebrity in the way that they became. So information was hard to come by. So I started a magazine on the, on the sole premise of finding out more about the people that I idolized. You and Eric then had a couple of agencies. One was called, it's kind of confusing to me, Jens, because right. they were all days right. of the week. Yes, yes, one was right. Saturday, one yeah. was Wednesday, but eventually the, the agencies were what you and Eric focused on building and you, mm -hmm. you went on to do lots of things like building the identity for mm -hmm. Mr. Porter and working with a lot of luxury brands. And creating campaigns for Calvin Klein. And creating campaigns for <laughs> Calvin Klein. So you kind of achieved... In that way, you achieved that dream that you and Eric had when you were 22, sitting in Orso. Yeah, that, that's, that's right, eating shrimp pizza. We started, you know, Saturday, which is the name of the agency at the time when we were around 24, so we were very young. And we were lucky enough that a few people really believed in us. Those clients really was Diego de la Valle. We had the Hogan business, I think, pretty much out of the gate. Kurt Geiger, a lot of shoe and accessories brands out of Italy. Later on, the high street, the big break, I think, was when H&M kind of brought us on board and we started to create many of those iconic campaigns that lived in the intersection of culture and fashion, which I guess has been a theme in my whole career. I've always worked more or less an intersection of popular culture and commerce. That was the big moment. However, you know, Eric was a far more talented art director than I was. And I had the opportunity to build a business around his creativity and later have the ability to, to back, to mentor, to incubate and build what became the Saturday Group. And many of those companies are still doing great. I'm no longer part of it. When I was in my mid-30s to late-30s, you know, we sold kind of company after company over several-year period. But yeah, that's really the origin. The agency was the engine, but ultimately what it became was almost this incubator 
for other talented creatives and entrepreneurs. And we met through your friend Mesh. Yeah. And I was a part of his life for a period of time, mm-hmm. building what became RMO. I quickly realized, which I'm sure not any or many listeners of this podcast remembers RMO, but RMO was a very prominent PR firm based in London and Paris a decade or so ago. I found that doing public relations for the like of J.W. Anderson and Erdem isn't necessarily a great business. Christopher Kane, Mary Catranzo, it was like by at some point, Justine and Mesh and Olivier were doing PR for basically every major young designer yeah. in London. And- it was like two out of three. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. We got into the business of helping these designers find retail. So we built a sales agency and I quickly realized that wasn't a good business either. <laughs> so I thought, what the hell do we do now? Yeah. And I had a relationship with Stefano Martinetto, who had a company in Milan called FutureNet. So we merged tomorrow with FutureNet and Stefano and I became partners and I was partners with him for quite a few years before ultimately I sold my interest in that business to Stefano and, and the private equity group. So Saturday Group became really a platform for not just myself, but for many other founders and who still today are doing it. And ITB tomorrow has become a phenomenal business. I'm, it's incredible what Stefano and Giancarlo have made, built from where we started. And Wednesday lives on as a part of Omnicom and ITB lives on as a part of Interpublic Group. So you exit kind of one by one all of these agency Mm -hmm. businesses that you built with Eric and with Mm -hmm. your now wife, Emma. Mm -hmm. What made you move to decide that you wanted to actually build your own fashion businesses, starting with Frame? Yeah, it started much earlier. Yeah. I was just very unsuccessful at it for a period of time. I think you come to the realization and maybe me, I'm a kind of grass is greener on on the other side of the hill type of person. So I keep pursuing an idea. I felt I wanted to be the client, not serve the client ultimately. And in my first chapter, I guess I'm in my second now, but in my first chapter, I really had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with the most fantastic entrepreneurs, visionaries, creatives of our business. And we were an extension of them, helping them find and connect with an audience. And at some point you want to put your money where your mouth is and say, you know what? I'd not only want to do this, I want to do this for myself. I want to have the emotional ownership, not just leave when the job is done. I want to hold on to something. Did you feel like you were creating, as a professional services company, you Mm -hmm. end up creating all this value for these clients, but you don't get to really share in that value? It's not yours. You're a gun for hire. And I think those in the service business who believe that they own the work end up being quite disappointed over time or resentful. I knew I wanted to be the client. And after spending time with people like Diego de la Valle or Remo Ruffini, you want to be like them. Right. I'm not saying I have, I'm trying still, but that became not just mine, but also Eric's, that became our ambition. And I don't think we would have created Frame if it wasn't for Remo Ruffini. 
What was the genesis of Frame? Well, it's interesting because we had done a few projects that really haven't caught on. And it was a real life lesson in entrepreneurship, which is if you're trying to create for someone else, it rarely works. But if you're trying to create for yourself, it has an opportunity because if you love it, chances are someone else will love it too. And I think this is often forgotten. In most companies that I helped as a consultant or with most companies that I know today, they spend way too much time thinking about the customer. The great companies are the customer. I will never forget a meeting once with Bernard Anoa, in which he said, do we have the license to do this? And I thought, here's the most successful entrepreneur, CEO, owner of his generation, if ever, in luxury goods, right? Unprecedented. And his mind is still on what the customer will allow him to do. And I find that to be something I come back to all the time in my own work, which is, if we don't love it, don't do it. And with Frame, it was never meant to become what it ultimately became. It became something because we did something for ourselves. It was a hobby project. We gave away, I think, three, 400 jeans to friends and family and people in the fashion business. And many of them were models. Instagram was a much less precious platform. Mm -hmm. So you got a lot more for free, I guess. And it just caught on, just caught fire. So this idea that, it's funny, it's like completely counterintuitive to like, mm -hmm. I met some designers recently, young designers, and they said, well, you know, should we create, should we design for ourselves or should we design for a customer we have mm -hmm. in mind? And when I used to teach at St. Martin's, I taught a business course there for 10 years. I spent a lot of time talking to designers about thinking about who their customer is, how they live, the moments in their day when they might need or want or love to have mm -hmm. a certain kind of mm -hmm. garment or piece of clothing. And you're saying actually exactly the opposite of the advice that I give, which is, no, 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 don't obsess about the customer. And what Mr. Arnaud said, which is like, don't think about if you have the license to do something. Think about what makes you happy and what brings you joy, which I also believe is a good thing. Like, like why do work that you, doesn't bring you joy? But you, you're saying now you don't get customer feedback. You don't look at that stuff. It's just all driven by... No, you, of course, you get customer feedback because not every one person is the same. Not everybody is created the same. We want different things. We don't all fit the same. So you have to listen to customer feedback and create. In fact, I believe that creating a community might be the only way today to scale an audience or to scale a brand. But I think that the start, okay, that spark, that thing that takes you from zero to something, to product market fit, that ultimately has to be driven by something, a need you want to fill. Right. I get it. Okay. That makes sense to me. It's like how BOF started. Like I didn't yeah. start BOF to become a media company. Right. I started BOF because I was like really interested in it and right. I'm going to build an audience. I get it. At some point, I didn't need to start thinking about, well, what do people uh -huh. want to read? And like, what's the feedback from our community? Tell me more about the community angle, because, you know, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot by mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. now. But what does that mean to you when you're building a brand? If I was going to backtrack for one second, you saying you didn't set out to create BOF to become a media company. 
well, a media company you are, a community you are, mm -hmm. and you're still doing a product that entertains you because if you didn't, you wouldn't be sitting in my living room on a Wednesday night. While I'm on holiday. While you're on holiday. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We're yeah. fans of what we do and hopefully that makes us good at what we do. Community gets thrown around a lot. I would say after the word iconic might be the most overused word of the moment. But the reality is that I used to create for brands and for myself to some extent, where the brand was on a pedestal and it spoke out and told the audience, this is what we are. This is an unattainable image for you to aspire towards. Mm -hmm. You should feel that you're not included and buy this t-shirt for $19.99 and somehow you are part of the beautiful people or whatever it was. I don't think that premise rings authentic to an audience today. That's just not the culture we're in. We move past that moment. We have an opinion, we expect to be heard and brands that we vibe with or interact with, we want to be part of to some extent. So I think that has changed. What I don't like is when that word is used by people who absolutely do not have community. And I guess, most often it's actually used by those who don't have it, but aspire to have it. So what's the difference in your mind between a brand that has community and a brand that doesn't? It's a really good question because a lot of it is intangible. But I guess the starting point is listening to your audience and not trying to manage their opinion. I think the best moment is actually part of my biggest mistake, which is before we launched Skims, we trademarked the word kimono for use of underwear. And it was tone deaf. And when a leak of that filing, I can't remember how it came to the press attention, but the feedback was pretty resounding. But even before it got to that point, we listened, we apologized, it was tone deaf. It wasn't appropriate. And we changed the name and we explained our mistake and we explained our way forward. It was a good moment for two reasons. One is, you know what kind of partner you have in bad times, not in good times. It's easy to be friends in good times. And Kim and I, it was probably one of those bonding moments. There wasn't panic. It was just, okay, we messed this up. This was tone deaf. What were we thinking? We've been surrounded by yes people <laughs> who said this was a good idea. It's clearly not a good idea. And then like the mayor of some city in Japan also yeah. wrote you a letter yeah. and like it became a big global story, yeah. right? Yeah, big global story. In hindsight, there was a lot of chatter that somehow we would have created that moment, but you don't create bad press. It's not enjoyable. It's unbelievably stressful. And even more stressful for my partner who is in the front line of popular culture and in the conversation. It's easy for me, I'm hiding behind. But ultimately, a positive moment. A positive moment because of how we met it and dealt with it and communicated with the audience. Well, let's talk about that partnership because on top of Frame, you went out and you did this partnership with Kim mm -hmm. Kardashian. 
like you already have frame to manage. So now what was the rationale for adding another business to oversee in your portfolio and why that particular business and why, why her? Kim had an idea of what she wanted to create and she had an aesthetic attached to it that I found to be absolutely compelling. I had a point of view on product and sometimes these partnerships, they're not so manufactured. They are very organic. I knew Kim for a while. Emma knew the family way before we moved to the States, way before she started Good American. So it was kind of more of an organic conversation. And I don't even know when we decided to do it. I guess you just come to a point where you think you cannot not do it. And I think that just happened. We just came to this point where we could not not do it. But really, it was a marriage between her idea aesthetically and what she wanted to create and the type of product she wanted to create and my views on what makes a great apparel company today. We really put those two things together and we felt very good. I'm not going to lie. We were pretty confident about the product we made because the product was good. What I don't think we could have anticipated was timing. You know, timing can make you look smart and it can make you look dumb. In this case, timing was just right for us. And the underwear category was just ripe to be, for the lack of better words, disrupted. Mm -hmm. It needed a new actor. It needed a new ideal. It needed a new type of product at a different type of quality. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that street where you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. 
With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Just hadn't happened. Right. And we came out in that moment where consumers were looking for something different. And not so intentionally, we managed somehow to come out with a commodity product. But talking about the community, they gave us the urgency. We didn't set out to create a brand that would live with hype. The community, for lack of better words, created the hype for us. Right. It connected with something and we never anticipated the demand. So whenever we launched products, it sold out. So it was like you were doing drops without knowing you were doing drops in a way. Correct. Because you weren't creating enough product. I mean, the first time I interviewed Kim, she told me the same thing happened with her makeup business. Mm-hmm. They would just completely constantly sell out products. So you even then you underestimated the demand that would materialize. Yeah, I think I can't remember, but a few months in, six months in, we had about two million people on wait lists. Wow. So it was unprecedented. It's easy to look clever in hindsight, but we really did come to market with very identifiable fabrications. There was real ideas to the product. And while it might be a slight premium to mass brands, I believe schemes offer tremendous value for the cost of the product. Having worked in and seen the inside of a lot of more traditional fashion Mm -hmm. businesses in Europe, you know, all the way from H&M up to Todd's, what does a fashion business look like from here in Los Angeles? And this new model that you've been a part of pioneering, I mean, America used to be known for this contemporary model. I know you have historically had a really good relationship with Andrew Rosen, who kind of was a real innovator in that space. I mean, what are the core elements of a model that make it successful now, in your view? And how is it different from what you saw in Europe? Andrew, who really taught me this business, and it's worth saying, I was an agency guy, maybe I knew a little bit about distribution, I knew quite a bit about e-commerce, but ultimately, he trained me. Yeah. There's just no doubt. And Andrew to this day is, has been like a second father to me. And he said once, because I don't think it's necessarily LA to the rest of the world. I think it's a US-Europe divide. Mm-hmm. It's just that people in New York don't really want to see it that way, which is Europe is about fashion and America is about ideas. In Europe, we create dreams, collections. In America, we create products that are ideas-driven. Europe has Saint Laurent, Prada, Dior. America has Levi's, Air Jordans, Lulu leggings. These kind of singular ideas. Europe really owns luxury. And America 
owns that premium every day. So a core product or idea is important. Mm -hmm. What about distribution? There's a lot of debate about the future of wholesale and DTC. Like, How does that fit into the model that you see working on this side? I believe we're standing in front of the biggest change in distribution, how we build our brands since the beginning of social media right now. I'm going to go into it. But first, I'd like to say that pretty much every fashion brand that has scaled successfully, it's been a product of a change in distribution. If it wasn't for the American department store and the growth of the American department store in the 80s of Saks and Neiman Marcus and Barneys, there wouldn't have been a Giorgio Armani, a Ralph Lauren. Or a Jimmy Choo or a Christian Louboutin. Like all right. of, yeah, these brands use those platforms yeah. to reach a huge customer base here. But imagine in the 80s, you had a retailer that financed their orders. So you could own your business like Giorgio Armani. You can own 100% of your business. And you could do that because wholesale was something a designer could finance. And you know, they needed brands. And those brands, Ralph Lauren, Giorgio Armani, Dolce Gabbana, they were able to fill the shelf space. Look at an American set of brands, these mall brands, Abercrombie & Fitch, The Gap, Victoria's Secrets. Mm -hmm. That's directly correlated with the expansion of the American mall. Malls were being built all over America in the 80s and 90s. That's what families did. That's what teenagers did. We all grew up in movies, which is about mall culture, hanging out in a mall. All that retail space, they needed concepts. And Dr. Rexler, the founder of L Brands, he created half of them all. Express, Abercrombie, Victoria's Secrets, Bath and Body Works. I'm not that entirely different from a little bit of the generation of brands that I am a small part of creating today. But there's a direct correlation there between malls expanding and those brands expanding. You get to 12, 14, 15 years ago or so, Orby Parker, Netta Porte, that is really a product of the consumer starting to shop online. Mm -hmm. So there was a new avenue of distribution, right? You fast forward to the financial crisis, 2008. Consumers don't have the money to spend on luxury, but they want that designer feeling. All of a sudden, all these spaces opening up, especially in department stores. Alex Wang, Fieri, Rag & Bone, Tory Burch. So scaling companies historically has been intertwined with changes in distribution. And Skims, together with Olaplex, Figs, I would say, Xi'an in China, those companies have been able to combine very high growth with very high profitability. And the reason they've been able to do it is because they are not spending on performance marketing to the same extent as the previous generation did. The fact that these brands are connecting with, here it comes again, with a community and it's spending time and resources in feeding and building that community and strengthening their brand and not putting the same amount of dollars to work to buy dollars, right? right. So I see that as a new generation of brands that would not have had the opportunity to be what it is if it wasn't for 
what is happening in social media and just culturally. So in this case, in the case of skims, you have a built-in advantage in terms of engaging a community because mm -hmm. you're working with one of the most followed people in the world. Yeah. So there's a celebrity factor too, right? So, you know, yeah. I mean, and with Kim, her community is like hundreds of millions of people. To what extent is that necessary to kind of make up for the performance marketing expense that a lot of other brands are kind of addicted to in terms of reaching new customers? Like, can you build a Skims without a Kim? Oh, I think you can. I think that the some of the brands I mentioned, um, Essentials, you know, by Fear of God and Fear of God by itself, uh, have also done it. And some of the other brands I mentioned. Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, first of all, Kim is and Kim's following is a huge advantage, not because necessarily the social channel itself is your selling channel, but because you have the ability to be in the conversation. Like you can write headlines. When we do something, we get a disproportionate amount of attention for what we do. It's like an omnipresence though, right? In right. the culture. It's right. like wherever you go, you know, and I have to say like 10 years ago, I did not know who the Kardashian family mm -hmm. was. I never watched that show. And now we're in a world where it's unavoidable. It's like headline news in the mainstream media. And that comes with a lot of visibility and presence and you know being part of the conversation, as you put it. But it also comes with intense scrutiny, constant speculation. Is that good for a brand too? Like just even if they're talking about something negative or something unfavorable or something that people are reacting poorly to, are you basically saying it, you know, is that old adage, all press is good press? Does that kind of apply here as no, well? No, I don't think so. I don't think all press is good press. I think that the benefit of being able to create headlines, and I'm not saying you're doing that so deliberate. I mean, that when we partner with the Olympics, when we team up with Fendi, when we bring back Tyra Banks, you know, out of retirement uh, for underwear, you know, we get a disproportionate amount of attention and that's a huge benefit. Oh, so what you're saying is when you do something, you get more attention for what you do because of Kim. That's right. Got it. I think that's a huge advantage. The flip side to that is that as beneficial it is to command sometimes culture, culture also commands you. So like in the example of Kimono. So you have to surrender to that and be as transparent as you can with your audience. I think that's the, the, the big lesson. But Kim is more than just someone who is, of course, unbelievably famous. But if fame alone built brands, the world would be absolutely full of skims because pretty much every celebrity worth their salt doesn't have just one, but several products in the market. And very few of them are successful, very few, especially in the long term. I wouldn't say that it is the whole story because I don't think that's giving enough credit to Kim as a creative director. It's part of our story. So what separates, and it's a fair point because there's so many celebrity beauty brands, there's so many celebrity fashion brands. Mm -hmm. What separates the ones that are successful, the very few that are like immensely successful, like Skims has been? and the ones that don't find an audience? I think there's two things. The first thing is 90% of it, the product. Yeah. When I talk to people about what matters when you build a brand or a company, 
I would say number one is product. Number two is product and price. And number three is product and brand. But it's all product. And brands such as Beats by Dre or Casamigos, the tequila brand, they're excellent products. You know, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine set out to create a system of headphones and speakers. And on the premise that the music that they loved didn't sound right in conventional headphones or speakers. They always felt that the bass was underplayed. So they created the product again for themselves. They created the headphone to kind of imitate the sound and the experience that they would have in the studio. And that is the premise of Beats. And with Casamigos, which is another, it's an excellent product. I had a glass of Casamigos not too long ago. I did not think about George Clooney when I was doing it. Right. Okay. So as you think about how big a business like Skims could become, I mean, I believe recently business was valued at $3.2 billion in your most recent funding round. How big can a business like this become? I think Skim has has the opportunity to create its own category within retail, much like what Lululemon has done, what the Jordan brand, which possibly is my biggest inspiration as we've set out to build Skims, a brand that exists in the intersection of popular culture and great product. And these are big companies. I mean, Lululemon is $40 billion or so market cap enterprise, give or take, on any given day or week or month, I guess. So if you have your own category in retail, the sky is really the limit. It's not hard for me or Kim to envisage Skims having a store anywhere in the world next to a Lululemon or a Nike, or dare I say, an Apple store. We want to create a generational retailer. What's the biggest risk for you in terms of achieving that? So, you know, if if you could scale this currently $3 billion brand into a $30 or $40 billion brand, what keeps you up at night in terms of what prevents you from achieving that growth? It's unbelievably difficult. You know, I've waited my whole career to be part of a moment like this, and I'm very scared of messing it up, very scared. At the same time, I know that if we stop experimenting, if we stop innovating, that is the fastest way to mess it up. A mutual friend of yours and mine, Pierre-Yves Roussel, who's the former chairman of LVMH Fashion, when I interviewed him for a magazine many years ago, he told me one piece of advice, possibly one of the most important pieces of advice I've ever heard. He said, the key to our success is that we transform on the way up. And I let that sink in for a second. The key to success is we transform before we have met the full promise of what we are doing. And it's like counter human nature to disrupt yourself, to take risks. And my worry is that Skims, having had such unbelievable success under such a short space of time, that we somehow become a victim of our success and we stop taking those risks. And that comes down to innovation and constantly finding new ways of creating product or reaching the customer. Like, What what are examples of the kinds of things that you're doing now to continue to innovate in that way? So most important is that you innovate your product, your core, your offering. You have to look 
to dislodge your own bestsellers. Because someone else is out there trying to do it, right? Like someone can copy skims at a cheaper price or in your slightly different aesthetic. I would go as far to say that most of our competitor has copied something from skims. Already? Of course, a color palette, a fabric, they countersourced it, they brought it to market. They casted models we've casted. They've tried to emulate the way that we speak and that we do social. Ultimately, innovation is the only moat. Everyone or many can make something cheaper. Someone can always come around and make something cheaper. Someone can come around and try to make something faster. So faster and cheaper are not moats. Innovation is a moat because when you bring something new to the market, you're two or three or four steps ahead. So for us, that is institutionalizing a culture at Skims of innovation. And yes, that exists on a product level. What is the innovation we're bringing out this fall, next year, the year after? And if you look back at what Skims has done, if it's the one-legged solution short, if it is shapewear that gave you shape but not flatten you, if it was the most recent adaptive collection that came to market, or if it is innovation in the supply chain. We launched two-hour delivery earlier this year And to my knowledge, we're the only D2C brand in the world that's ever been able to deliver within a two-hour window guaranteed in a major U.S. city without having a physical store. And that innovation came around from looking at the dark kitchens that we have in all major cities around the world today. We thought if they can bring you a restaurant meal within the last mile, mile and a half, can that not be mini warehouses, mini free PLs? What if we shipped from dark kitchens? We could have whatever you're looking for from our assortment within a space of half an hour, an hour. And it was possible. Just no one had thought about it. No one had wanted to take the risk to make it happen. And I was asked when we announced it, why did you do it? What research? What research prompted you to do this? And I said, it was no research. I just know where I'm going to be within the next two hours. I don't always know where I'm going to be tonight. And I believe most of our customers don't always know what they're going to do between 6 and 9 p.m. They might go out for dinner. But you know what? Most of us know where we will be in two hours. That's the reason why we did it. We innovated for ourselves. So for a minute, let's go back to when you were 22 in London and you were sitting with Eric in that restaurant in Soho, plotting your future as ad men and agency people. And then you shifted your focus to building fashion business. For young people looking to break into this industry and figure out their own path and build their own businesses and reach their own dreams, what's your advice to them now? What's the opportunity out there? It sounds so simple, the first part, which is do something you love, do it for yourself and make it at the price you can afford to buy it. Because if you're not the customer of what you create, no one else will be. I think that's number one. In terms of building and scaling a business, you need to look for changes in distribution, which today means changes in technology. We're going through the biggest change in our social algorithms that most of us consume, probably for about a decade. We're moving from this feed and grid system of still pictures with text underneath, which really we took from the blog 10, 15 years ago, which was a picture with text underneath, 
which the blogs took from magazines, which were a picture with text underneath. So when I say it like that, it sounds pretty archaic, right? We're moving to a world where you have to earn your views because views are no longer from the people that follow you, but it's the algorithm serving up new viewers, new followers for you. So in a way, big brands have been able to rely on the current algorithm to really control who sees their message. And now the playing field just been leveled. If I was 24 or 25 straight out of college, or if I'm 30 and I'm leaving my first design job in New York, or if I'm 40 and I've been the CEO and now I'm president and now I want to start my own thing, I would be excited. I think this is the first moment I've seen in years where the playing field is leveled, where you can come out and create virality for what you do and find a much bigger audience than what follows you. So I think it's an exciting, exciting moment, a democratic moment, in fact. Well, Jens, it's been nice to see you after so long, and I always enjoy our chats. Happy that we could share this one with our uh, community out there listening all over the world. They stopped me on the street and asked me questions and always want to hear from people like you. So to everyone listening, thank you for joining us this week. And thank you, Jens, for sharing your story with us. It's what I always love the most about this industry is there's people who've like, everyone's carved their own path. And yeah. <laughs> it is exciting this moment you're in. So congratulations. On thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Bartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. When I first started writing BOF, it was out of pure passion for this industry and with an eye to how the disruptive forces of digitization, globalization, and consumer shifts would change the way fashion works. 15 years later, we are well on our way to helping to define the fashion business of the future. As I travel the world, some of you ask me, what's the best way to support BOF as we continue to act as your guide during these turbulent times? The best way to support BOF is to support our journalism by joining BOF Professional, the largest community of fashion professionals in the world. A BOF professional membership gives you access to our agenda-setting insights and analysis, which you won't find anywhere else, plus the opportunity to learn from our talented team of correspondents and editors, as well as our wider network of the fashion industry's leading creatives, thinkers, and futurists. Follow the link in the episode notes to learn more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.